6-7W, classified top secret subject is... H's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Hello. Hello. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. I'm Andrew. I'm Michael. Very well done. Yeah. We're, we're sort of, we're I'm, sort I'm, of I'm, down I'm, with the intro now. I'm mature now, so I'm... Oh, yeah. yeah. Since the birth there. The yeah. whole mature thing. Got my cane as well. Have you? Yeah. Why have you got a cane? My little walking stick. Because you're an old man now. I'm old. I need to help walk. Help. I need help walking. Okay, fair enough. Um, first bit, I got it wrong. Again? Yeah. It's a recurring thread, it is. isn't it? I getting it wrong. This is the theme of the show. Yeah, Scott got in touch. Hi, Scott. It did it. Yeah. Okay. When we were at Universal and we were talking about our favourite comic book runs, because I know it's going to shock people that we talked about comics. Well, when we met each yes. other, I said when we did the John Byrne one, his favourite Fantastic Four was two hundred and fifty. Right. It's two hundred and forty-nine. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. I messed that up. But we were quite distracted in Universal. Yeah. By all the ooh, the shiny. Ooh, that. Yeah. Ooh, that. Yeah. Michael, take a picture of all these things and we'll put them up on the uh, website. We never did. No. Never got around. Well, I put two of them up. Okay. I put one of Darth Vader up. All right, then. And one of Universal Studios. Darth Vader's got everything to do with comics. He was. He's, he's in comics, I would argue. <laughs> okay. That's what I think, anyway. Um, I think that's it, isn't it, for preamble this week? Yeah. I don't think we have anything else. Um, so, emails... Our regular email section. Our first email is your podcast. Hey guys, I listen to your podcast every week. Not by choice, but I listen everywhere. Keep up the good work, Angela Leyland. <laughs> Thanks, love. Oh, and Andrew, you haven't done any singing for a while. I've been letting people rest from the singing. Oh, they're resting from I, the singing. I think that uh, the dramatic reading. Oh, that was... I think that, that made up for any singing. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give up your day job. <laughs> Although I wish I could. I really do. Um, our next email is from Bobby Coakley. Hi, Bobby. Hello. Hello, Leylands. We said hello too soon, didn't we? We did. Peter David, Grant Morrison, and Monday Morning Quarterbacking. First of all, attached to the pages from DC Universe Last Will and Testament, where Geoforce and Deathstroke fight, and Deathstroke says he drugged Terra with something that drove her crazy, and that he drugged Geoforce with a more refined version of his crazy juice. I think they are large enough for you to read now, right? Let's have a look at those. Yes, uh, yes they were large enough for us to read. I'm still not sure about that. I'm still not sure about Deathstroke giving Terra a drug okay. that made her bad. Because that ruins the story. I kind of just like her as being a bit mad. Yeah. Some people just are crazy. There's not a lot you can do about that. Um, second, I could write a whole paper, Monday morning quarterbacking, The Dark Knight Rises. Simply put, I think Rises needed more female characters. Maybe Sarah Essent, Rene Montoya and Ellen Yin as Gotham cops. Well, I thought, you know, in The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. there was a cop in it that I thought was Montoya. Yeah. But it wasn't because she ended up betraying him, didn't she? And she didn't have Montoya's name. Yeah. I thought she was supposed to be Montoya. Well, you know what I think? Dark Knight Rises needed. Hmm. A Batman and interesting plot. 
<laughs> You're not letting that go, are you? No. Okay. Also, instead of Man Bat and Mr. Freeze, we could have Francine Langstrom and Nora Fleece as technical legs. <laughs> Sorry. Robot Chicken's ruined that name for me. It's like Freeze, but it's, it's spelled fries. <laughs> Uh, as a technical expert working for Lucius Fox, Francine is a sonar expert and Nora knows freezing technology, explaining why the ice doesn't break when Batman steps on it to rescue Gordon. Third, Peter David and Grant Morrison. Peter David, when he's good, he's very, very good. The novelizations of movies he's written, including Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, explain rather glaring plot holes. An example from Spider-Man 2 is how Dr. Octopus knew Murray Jane and Peter Parker were at the coffee shop before throwing the car through the window. The novelization says Ock used his arms to hook into fibre optics to tap Peter's phone. Many of Peter David's Star Trek stories, whether for comics or novels, are fantastic. He really gets his characters and also likes to touch on the part of Star Trek I find most confusing, the Prime Directive. The Prime Directive is a really confusing thing that many Trek writers write around or ignore. Peter David uses it to good effect in his stories. In his first Star Trek comic storyline, Who Killed Captain Kirk, from DC Comics' 1984 Star Trek series, issues 48 through 55, also had some amusing references to the next generation, which had just started airing. Two examples are attached. One is about the Klingons with humans becoming allies, the other is about Dr. McCoy saying we'll live another 87 years because he takes care of himself. When Peter David's bad, he's cack, as you say. Two examples of Peter David being cack both involve Spider-Man and both happened close together. Sections of Spider-Man the other that Peter David wrote were not bad, not that the chapters written by JMS and Reginald Hudlin were much better, and a story right after the other in Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man issue 5. In chapter 2 of the other, Murray Jane tells Peter Parker that he has a death wish. He doesn't just feel guilty over the criminal he refused to stop later on killing Uncle Ben. He feels shame that Ben died, but he lived. She uses a lack of warning light on his web shooters when they are running low as an example, even though many stories have shown he did have a low webbing warning light. Yeah, he did. Did he? Yeah, David Michelini introduced that. He got fed up of his web shooters running out without what, him knowing about it. Yeah, so he attached some kind of LED warning thing to tell him when the web shooter was running low. Okay. I always thought he would have known anywhere because he has separate cartridges in the thing, don't they? So you twist them around into yeah. place. So surely he would have noticed when he was sliding them into place. Oh, that one's empty. Yeah. But maybe that's just me. But he did. Yeah, he did have that warning light that subsequent writers have forgot. Because he also invented that thing to shoot web tracers at people. Right. Spider tracers. He actually invented something that launched it from his hand. Right. He had them in, the, in his web shooter. And I don't think that's been largely forgotten as the years have gone on. So basically, Peter's entire career as Spider-Man has been an attempt at suicide by supervillain. So Peter can die and be with Uncle Ben. This is very uncharacteristic of Mary Jane and wasn't even properly resolved at the end of the story. The other had many, many flaws, but this is what sticks in my head. I've never read the other. I have. That's one of the few Spider-Man stories I've never read, but you've read it. I had to enjoy it. It shames me to say, but... (laughs) We've got the trade paperback on the, the very bookshelf yeah. I'm currently looking at, but no, I've, I've never been able to bring myself to read that because right. I've just heard so many things about it that would just make me want to smack the writer. Peter Parker dies and gives birth to himself. Yeah, and, yeah. That, that's actually quite interesting and well handled. Is it really? The bad concept, but well handled. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for that. Uh, Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man 5, written by Peter David and drawn by Mike Waringo, is also an example of Peter David as CAC. The story follows a woman named Ivana through her blog. Through some chance encounters with Spider-Man, she happens to be there when Spider-Man is battling a supervillain four different times, she gets the bizarre idea Spider-Man is stalking her. The story jumps a few decades into the future where an old Vanna is confronted by an old woman who says she's Spider-Man's widow. The widow guesses that Vanna's parents messed her up and says that some people can get over their problems and some can't. Vanna might as well have never existed. 
Vanna starts to say she misses Spider-Man and the idea he thought she was special, but the widow is gone. Vanna goes home and says on her blog, nothing important happened today. The story downright annoyed me because Vanna is mentally ill, and the widow, who may or may not have been Murray Jane, thus may or may not be mentally ill herself, says Vanna should have gotten over it. Other fans dislike the story as well. Peter David himself has said he found it amusing that people obsessed over Spider-Man on their computers think that a woman who obsesses over Spider-Man on a computer is mentally ill. <laughs> it's a valid point. I have, I think I have read that one, because I've got every issue of Friendly Neighbourhood, haven't I? Yeah. Didn't I get them all in the 50p bin somewhat? Yeah. Regarding Grant Morrison, well, he can be really confusing. When talking about his works, I make jokes about Grant Morrison's magic mushrooms. Sometimes I can appreciate what he wants to do in his stories, but I can never quite see what he accomplished those goals. In Supergods, he said much of his work in New X-Men was about conformity culture that appears to be in the process of greedily consuming the unusual and the different in post-9-11 America. Did Morrison actually accomplish this in New X-Men? I'm not sure. Keep up the good work, Bobby C. Thank you very much, Bobby. But he, he, he got... His new X-Men run. If I asked you what that was about, you would have said it's about conformity culture that appears to be in the process of greedily consuming the unusual and the different. Is that what you would have said? Word for word. <laughs> oh, you do make me laugh. Well, the, 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 the penultimate story arc about Magneto <laughs> taking over Manhattan is very much a what is comics and life like now after 9-11. So it's not another story about a story? No, no, it, it's all like, right, we've had terrorists actually blowing up two of our buildings, and now we've got some guy who can control metal trying to take over us. So why are we listening to this guy? Let's just carry on our lives. No, fear me! No, no it's... Go all right, so they just ignore Magneto at the end oh, of the Oh, yeah. Everyone takes the mick out of him, no one takes him seriously. And he gets really annoyed about this, and everyone's like, no, you're that Zon bloke with the X-Men, you saved us all, what are you doing now? No, I'm not Zon, I'm Magneto. No, you're Zon, bugger off. Again, I'll, I'll take your word for that because I've never read New X. You should. Just, people keep telling me that. The Sorry, people not who, that. The people who obviously want me to have high blood pressure. Me. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Bob. It's much appreciated. Thank you for your kind words. Um, our next email spotlight on four. I'll sing it in the rain. Hello from sunny Florida. Oh, another Floridian. It's Bill Robinson. Hello, Bill. Bill's never emailed in before. Has he not? It's nice to, nice to have well, you email Well, he has we just forgot about it. No, it? I don't recall Bill emailing in before. Okay. At least I don't think so. Um, Floridian. Always oh, sounds like an alien in Star Trek. Yeah, it does. Doesn't it? Captain, it's the Floridians. <laughs> On screen. Disneyland. Woo! <laughs> That would be really cool. Bunch of aliens that just want to go to Disneyland. That would be a brilliant episode of Star Trek. Do you think there's still a Disneyland in Star Trek's future? Um, Disney Galaxy. I like the idea of Disney Planet. Yeah. And I love the idea that somebody said this somewhere, I don't remember Disney who. Disney Planet in the, in the 16th quadrant. Yeah, and it has twin suns <laughs> that... La- that d- dock over the planet simultaneously so from a distance it looks like a Mickey Mouse head yeah. I think that's a fantastic idea unless you're at a different angle and then as soon as we get terraforming planets <laughs> we need to make that happen uh, Bill's email sorry about that we got distracted again didn't we? Yeah. Uh, I finished listening to Spotlight 4 today and it was great oh thank you very much we appreciate that I learned a few things about Grant Morrison I did not know so did I did you? yes that has to be said. Okay, I'll admit, aside from reading some of his stories here and there, I wasn't really aware of some of Mr. Morrison's, shall we say, quirks. The audio clips were a nice touch as well. Well done, Michael. Thank you. Um, although I must confess on the audio clips, he sounded a bit smug. <laughs> Funny, I'll give him that, but a bit smug. 
Michael, happy 17th. Thank you. Don't go conjuring up John Lennon or anything along those lines. You should listen to Revolution Number 9. I suggest using headphones to get the full effect. And that is the first time I read it. Tell, tell, tell the lovely listeners the story of the first time you listened to Revolution Number 9. It was for the show. Yeah, well, I said, yeah. didn't that when we were... Because so you edited that one, and I said, you need to put Revolution Number 9 so I did put somewhere under the invisible. And listening to my head, I was like, is this, is this the right one? It's just some guy saying... Number nine. Number nine. Yeah, it's like, well, maybe this is the next one. What, what, what's going on? And the further I listened to it, it was like, the, the dirty my pants got. And I said, this is really creepy. Adam, this is really creepy. It's one in the morning and I must have said, it's really dark. Adam, Adam, are you still awake? What were you on? This is really scary, Adam. Yeah, Revolution Number Nine freaked you out, didn't it? Yeah. Did you listen to it on headphones? I did listen to it. Excellent. Good. So he did that, Bill. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I have corrupted my child. And thus my work is done. Yes. As for the conjuring up John Lennon. The, let's, let's not encourage that. Uh, Bill's email continues, which leads me to the other statement in the subject line. Once you started playing Revolution Number no. 9 under the podcast, I started to sing and mumble the lines to myself, not taking notice of the coming rainstorm a few miles from me. I was working on the roof of a warehouse around 200,000 square feet in size, and the only way down being a staircase located on one side of the building at its centre. So while mumbling El Dorado, I'm sure Andy remembers that line in the song, yes I do, I feel a drop of rain on my back. I turned to see a massive wall of grey advancing towards me. I threw what I could into what I was working on and began to cross the roof to get cover. Needless to say, I got halfway and the wall reached me, much like the wall of antimatter in Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> Excellent. So like Pariah, I bellowed out loud and longed for dry clothing. I did make it to my van and sat out the remainder of the passing shower listening to you guys all the while. I don't blame you, as I should have been mindful of my surroundings, as a small green fellow once said. I look forward to your next episode, as always, Bill Robinson. Thank you very much, Bill. Those, those, that Floridian rain. Yeah. Can come down quite quickly, can't it? Mm. On the plus side, it's not rained, at least I presume it's not rained in Florida, every single day, all day, for the past two goddamn weeks. I got a free day because of it. Oh, so. God, God, yeah, but your school closes when a feather falls on it. Yeah. It was flooded, we need to send people home. It wasn't the flood, it was the gas leak. <laughs> I'm getting bored of the rain now. I can't rain all the time. You, gee, you live in England and you bored already. Yeah. I see this being a problem. Yes. You see the flop in the plan. <laughs> Our final email tonight is from Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Hi, Luke. Hello. Happy birthday, Michael. Now I will tear apart your favourite writer. Is uh, the subject heading. Seems like a decent present. <laughs> to the hurry-handed gents who ran amok in Kent. Have you ever been to Kent? No, that's Werewolves of London. Okay. By Warren Zevon. Right. Isn't it? Do you, do you have, like, a little sparring <laughs> going on? No, no, because he frequently, he frequently catches me out with his subject headings. Yeah. Because he's, he's more pop culture headbangery than me. A lot of it's, like... A lot of it just goes right over my head. Ranges. Yeah, and a lot of it just goes right over my head. But I got that one. Yeah. I feel like Captain America and the Avengers. I get that reference. And everyone just looks at him and goes... Captain America, the ad- advertisement campaign for hipsters... Why is he an absolute advertisement campaign? Oh, is Adam not sure to that picture? No. Tony, I've just listened to the Rolling Stones. Like, great, great, Tony. So, oh, oh great, is this an like, Oh, and I'm listening to like, the Beatles as well. Like, great, Steve. Oh, and I'm listening to Nirvana. This kid sounds really troubled. <laughs> is he okay? Yes, I have seen that one. I remember that last bit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Luke's, Luke's email continues. Sorry for the interruption. First off, on for serious this time. Happy birthday, Michael. 
Thank you. It was appropriate that this episode came out when it did, because Morrison Con was going down in Las Vegas this past weekend as oh. I was listening to your podcast. You're obsessing me, Luke. Because you didn't get to go. I've been looking at the, the videos and the images and all that. I've tried to hunt down every single video I could of it, but it's just made me more depressed. Perhaps you're obsessed. I wanted to go. I know you did. Maybe next year. He's not going to be here next time. Oh, is, this, is that it? He said he didn't want to do this one in the first place, especially not if it was going to be named after him. So why did he do it? Just because it sounded cool. Oh, okay. It did sound pretty cool. When you have Chris Burnham drawing drunk people in the morning. Robert Kirkman was there as well, wasn't it? He so was it you. wasn't just Grant Morrison. No, no, there's no, no. Yeah, lots of people. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, there was a lot of Grant Morrison-related news coming out on Newsarama and Twitter. Clearly that was planned, as you guys plan every aspect of your show down to the most minute detail. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was totally planned, oh, I, I also like it how Grant Morrison planned this event on my birthday just to say, hey, you can't go on your birthday. Yeah, it was. it's, it's the fundamental yeah. interconnectedness of all things. No, it wasn't planned, Luke. It was yeah. dumb luck. Because, uh, in fact, that was supposed to be the Alex Ross episode. Yeah. Until I pointed out that it would be Michael's birthday episode and said, go wild, do whatever the hell you like. Mm-hmm. And so he went away in a light bulb. And so after running around the house with no pants on. And after I, I that, didn't realise what you meant when you said do what you like. Other than that, which was quite disturbing to me, <laughs> the light bulb went on over his head and he went, aha! He said, I can do anything I like. Let's put some pants on. After you put some pants on. <laughs> You decided that you would inflict more Morrison upon me. Yeah. <sighs> to be it, fair, it Batman works. 700 was good. Yeah. I enjoyed Only that. Only that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Luke's email continues. Grant Morrison, as a writer, is one who runs very strongly hit or miss for me. Me as well, Luke. There are works of his which I think are, if not brilliant, then certainly top shelf stuff. I thought his JLA was grand and rightfully held in high regard. I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's restrained, Morrison. Oh, God. (laughs) I remember when that book was about to be released, he did an interview with Wizard Magazine talking about the grandeur of the Justice League and how he wanted to return them to that grandeur. I loved his take on Aquaman that he's not the hero of the seas, but rather the hero from the seas, and his approach to Batman would, I think, irrevocably change how other writers at DC would handle aspects of The Dark Knight. Final Crisis, I thought, was excellent. Really? Oh, yeah, it's good. I didn't think it was excellent, did I? You ain't... Enjoyed. I enjoyed it in the... This is a difficult one, this, because I went very <laughs> easy on it because of the grief I got from Steve. And hi, Steve, about the um, the X-Men issue. But I had to read certain aspects of it 400 times, which is a slight exaggeration, to make them make sense. And no, you're not telling me the Superman Beyond 3D <laughs> issue made a lick of sense. I'm not going to bother. I think okay. it made sense, but... All right, fair enough. You liked it. If you read it backwards, upside down. (laughs) No, I thought we said if you rip all the pages out. Drop it on the floor, pick it up in a random order. Drop them on the floor, pick the pages up in a random order, and suddenly it all makes sense. And you read ten new pages of Captain Carrot fighting zombies. Yeah, perfect. Suddenly it's like Paul is dead. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, sorry, Luke, we we got distracted. I'm quite surprised Luke liked Final Crisis. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Luke seems to be much, forgive me if I'm wrong, Luke, but he seems to be much more of a super straight up superheroes, nuts and bolts guy like I am. Okay. With occasional diversions into war comics. Right. Like I am. Yeah. Um, so the fact that he liked Final Crisis does surprise me. Mm. I don't mind admitting. But, fair enough. To each their own. 
there's somebody who answered that. Uh, Morrison was in his element working on updating some of the Kirby concepts, such as the new gods, the forever people, and the anti-life equation, Luke continues, as well as Bronze Age characters like Libra and Black Lightning. Final Crisis 6, which features the showdown between Batman and Darkseid, is one of the few comics I can remember reading, pausing for a minute to reflect, and then immediately reading again. All oh, right, okay, fair enough. On the other side of the coin, I sometimes think Morrison starts to get too much in his own head and starts to believe his own hype. Come on, that's fur. That's fur comment. Okay. I think he tries things that have no chance of working just to see if he can get away with writing it or to amuse himself in making some reference or another. He's the kind of writer who's been told how clever he is for his whole life and thus thinks that everything he says is sheer brilliance. To me, this translates more often to him losing the actual plot and instead of being infatuated with his own concept. So there's a lot of nonsense to wade through to get to the actual point, if there even is one. Superman Beyond was just such a story. Two issues of high concept but ultimately meaningless ideas, so all that Superman can essentially obtain a MacGuffin device for use in the main series. Was that not basically just an excuse to sell a 3D comic? Well, yeah, really? but at the same time, the whole is it not just trying different things? If you're a writer, would you not try to do something different every once in a while? Yes. Like, Neil Young went off and did his trans album, which was utter crap, but he still went and did a new thing. Yeah, and Bob Dylan went electric for a bit. Yeah. Hmm. I see your point. My personal thinking is, if he gave that idea to Sir Stephen Moffat... Stephen Moffat could probably write a couple of excellent episodes of Doctor Who around Morrison's ideas. Oh, Grant Morrison could have wrote an excellent episode of Doctor Who. Should would, BBC would give Grant him Morrison time of day? not write a wacky episode of Doctor Who? Uh, not if it's anything like his Doctor Who comics. I've never read them with any god. Um, I've, I've flipped through them. The only wackiest thing I could see about it really was a, um, a talking penguin. Oh, the talking penguin was. Uh, maybe I have read him no. because the talking penguin was Colin Baker's companion for a while. In the comic strip, in the comics. <laughs> okay. What was his name? Probisher. Right, okay. So I well, didn't know Grant Morrison wrote that. I flicked through I've not read the, a lot of them. like four. I had them as a little pocket comic book that came free with Weetabix. Grant Morrison did comics with Weetabix. No, no, no. They were originally published in Doctor Who magazine or Doctor Who Monthly or whatever it was then. Doctor Who yeah. Weekly it may have been. And they reformatted them all as little pocket-sized comics right. in Weetabix. And there was about four or five of them, I think. I had a couple of them. And they were, I actually quite enjoyed them. They were little flimsy yeah. things he got free in Weetabix, but they were fun. Oh, maybe I have read the Grant Morrison ones then. Because I did quite enjoy that. Oh, sorry, Luke's email continues. I don't know that I ever read another writer so in love with his own ideas as Grant Morrison. The extended clip you played about him talking about summoning the spirit of John Lennon was so smug and irritating to me as a listener. But to each their own. Clearly has a legion of fans who love his work, so who am I to knock it just because it's not my thing? In any event, I enjoyed the episode, if only for Michael's enthusiasm and his scepticism. <laughs> Can't wait to hear the next instalment of Spotlight on Luke. Thank you, Luke. We hope you enjoyed the rest of them. Mm-hmm. P.S. I saw a werewolf drinking a pina colada down at Trader Vic's and his hair was perfect. Oh, Told you it was werewolves of London. Okay. Thank you very much, Luke, Bobby, and Bill. And, Those, and Mum. Thank you very much, Angela, for emailing in. Always, always nice to hear from people. Mm-hmm. We do appreciate every single not, one of you. Uh, no, we've got another episode from another email from Luke, but we're rapidly approaching the 30 minutes, so under our new rule, we will save that one for next week. No, even though the one we just read came up came to us after the one we're not doing no 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 if you read them in order yeah the, he sent us that one before he sent us the Peter David and Garth Ennis one because yeah. the Garth Ennis one only went up today yeah with the Peter David Garth Ennis one. Oh, we did yeah right okay <laughs> Garth Ennis one only went live today is that confusing you so it did yeah, yeah. it is very wibbly wobbly timey wimey yeah. stuff isn't it 
living two weeks in advance. Even especially when I've still not finished editing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you're, you've still got another week to finish that. Yeah. I'll have done today's before you finish next week's. Probably, yeah. Because that's the way I roll. Uh, okay. We'll take a quick break and be right back with Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. And we're back. Well done. Just ain't taking a drink. <clears throat> yeah, you waited until I had a mouthful of liquid. You always wait till I have a mouthful of biscuit. Yeah, but that's funny to me. Right, so, so it's not you. funny when we No, it's not it. funny when I do it. Right, okay. It's not funny when you do it to me and I start yeah. coughing and snot <laughs> comes out of my nose. Just like that, then. <laughs> That actually sounds hilarious. No, really not. Really just gross, to be honest with you. When your eyes are streaming and snot's coming out your nose because somebody's made you laugh at the exact <laughs> moment that you've took a big drink. Normally in the pub. Well, at least the snot ain't coming out, streaming out your eyes. That's, so. that's, that's very true. Yes. I wonder if that would actually, could actually happen. I don't want to know. I do actually. Do you? Yeah. Okay. And so, to the final episode of this season, because we just number these arbitrarily, mm. don't we? It's normally the way of things. And as usual, we've pulled out all the stops. Well, by that, we've read a couple of comics. Yeah. <laughs> it's like being a DJ, really, isn't it? All you do is talk and play records. Not that hard. Play other people's stuff. We talk and read like hands comics. In yeah. Dum, dum, dum. We talk and read comics. It's not that difficult, to be honest with you. Um, where are we? Following the Christ on Infinite Earths in the middle. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, thank you. For, do you want to read the notes? <laughs> Um, we're, we're doing a story I think is hugely underrated and deserving of a much better reputation. Following the crisis on Infinite Earth in the mid-1980s, DC Comics relaunched or revamped a number of their iconic characters to varying degrees of success. But a number of these, such as Frank Miller's revitalization of Batman, have earned the status of classic. And again, to this day, John Byrne's reboot of Superman, George Perez's reboot of Wonder Woman, and the DeMatteis Geffen Justice League era are still talked about. One character that didn't receive a reboot, but was recast with a darker, more mature sensibility, and I use the word mature in the proper sense of the word, was one of my personal favourites, the Green Arrow. Green Arrow is an unusual character in the list of my faves. I've never read an extended run on the character, know absolutely nothing about his pre-hard-travelling hero's incarnation, and yet there's something about the older, more seasoned Green Arrow that resonates with me. 
I don't recall where I first met the Green Arrow, but it was probably in the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams rightfully famous No Evil Can Escape My Sight, originally published in Green Lantern 76, which stealth rebooted Arrow's social crusader with a particular viewpoint that he wasn't afraid to espouse either in his Green Arrow guise or in his everyday identity of Oliver Queen. I quite liked that Arrow was a bit of a loudmouth, but wasn't afraid to back up what he was saying, and whilst I didn't always agree with him, all his alter ego, I suppose I appreciate a character that actually had a different viewpoint. I would like to see this in every character, but once in a while it's a breath of fresh air. I remember reading his adventures as backup strips in detective comics with some stories by Alan Moore and some excellent art by the underrated Trevor Von Eden. I recently got a hold of the 1983 miniseries by Mike W. Barr and Von Eden and it's an excellent Bronze Age tale, updated in reinvigorating the character for the 80s, but doing it within a continuity and not urinating all over past creators' work. Kevin Smith and Brad Meltzer did great work with Arrow when he was brought back from the dead in 2001. Oh yeah, Oliver Queen died by being blown up real good. Mm. But he got better. Oh yeah, so that's that's all that matters. Stitched himself back together. Stitched himself back together, yeah. He was brought back in Final Night. He was resurrected as part of Final Night. But there was no explanation until... I can't remember. Okay. No, I don't recall. I've not read Quiver for a long time, which was the Kevin Smith mm. return of Oliver Queen. One of the things I like about Green Arrow is his similarity to Robin Hood and the Robin Hood legend of a man of wealth and means. And I know there are different tellings of Robin Hood, but for simplicity's sake, we're going with the most familiar, who turns against a corrupt and illegitimate ruling class for the good of the people. I have to confess, I'm not a fan of the trick arrows and slightly goofy Urzat's Batman incarnation of Green Arrow, preferring the more up-to-date and grittier interpretation. Green Arrow had two distinct origins in the early days. His first, from more fun comics, 89, The Birth of the Battling Bowman, states that Oliver Queen was a wealthy collector of Native American artefacts who, after his collection is destroyed in a museum fire, is told by a friend of a gold mine of such relics at a place called Lost Mesa. Some criminals who overhear this conversation and think it's about an actual gold mine head to Lost Mesa to get the gold before Queen can. Living on Lost Mesa is a boy named Roy Harper and his faithful Indian companion Quog, Quog, I don't know how you pronounce that, who had been stranded there years before after a plane crash that killed Roy's father. After the criminal gang kill Quog, Queen and Harper use their archery skills to defeat them. Queen then takes Harper in his war and as his ward, and the two decide to continue fighting crime as the Green Arrow and Speedy, taking their names from remarks made by the criminals of Lost Mesa. This was later made the origin of the Earth 2 Green Arrow. And with many thanks to the Gutter Talk website for providing research about that, because I've never read that origin. Me neither. I was I was unaware of it until I was doing research for this. Mm. So I much appreciated the Gutter Talk website. His second origin, and the one that had stuck, first appeared in Adventure Comics 256, some 15 years later in 1953. Oliver Queen, party animal and billionaire, falls from a yacht in the middle of the sea to alight upon a deserted island named Starfish Island, because it looked like a starfish. For five years, Ollie has to learn to survive, and after seeing a boat on the sea, he swims to it, foils some mutineers and returns to civilization. This has been elaborated on in recent times in Mike W. Barr's 1983 retelling. Ollie is on the boat nursing a broken heart and is tossed overboard by pirates. Pirates that some years later return to the island and after capturing them, Ollie effects an escape. The broken heart he is nursing pays into the story when later on said flame returns. This leads us to this week's issues. Mike Grell's Green Arrow masterpiece, The Longbow Hunters. An epic three-issue prestige format miniseries square-bound with 52 pages each, costing a whopping $2.95 at the time. This series was quickly printed up in trade paperback, where I first saw it in WH Smith's in town around 1989. 
1989 was, as Michael Bailey has stated, the year of the bat, i.e. the year of the Tim Burton Batman movie. And in addition to legitimising Batman comics, it legitimised the graphic novel, with various different reprints showing up in normal bookstores. This was one of them. I poured over this in the store, practically reading it in the agog at the simply beautiful artwork and the brutality of the story. The fact that there were naked women was a, a draw as well. Hey, I like a well-written, well-drawn story, but a well-written, well-drawn story with naked women in it's always going to catch my eye. The trade paperback went out of print before I could get a copy, although it is being reprinted now to coincide with the new TV series Arrow, so go out and pick up a copy if you never have done. And the three issues became increasingly hard to find. Until Mike were I, and Mike were I... Until Mike and I were at the Bix Comic Convention in Birmingham, where a very attractive young lady was selling her art. Below the table, she had a box of comics, and I leafed through and found all three issues of Longbow Hunters. How much for these, I asked. Oh, make me an offer, I said. I didn't offer to pleasure in return for the comics, because I'm happily married, and despite what Arnie may say, eating is cheating, so I offered her a fiver for the three comics. She looked at me. Really? she asked, because everyone else has just picked up a handful for a pound. No, no, a five is fine, I said, offering her a crisp five pound note. Well, it may have been crumpled, but whatever. So happily, she took the money, and I took home all three issues of The Longbow Hunters. True story. Okay. Where were you while I was doing that? In a queue for some artists. Had you wandered around for an artist or oh. a panel or something? Okay, for I it. always bugger off the artists. Yeah, I, I hit the dealer's rooms more than anything, don't yeah. I? I don't mind getting signatures from people. Yeah. And I like seeing them draw. But by and large, I'm not really interested in meeting celebrities. It's probably why I've never done, like, Star Wars or Star Trek conventions or anything. I'm just... I'm not interested in actors. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in the characters. Yeah. yeah. I don't mind meeting Luke Skywalker. <laughs> but Mark Hamill. Meeting Mark Hamill. Well, I don't know. If he do his Joker voice for me, that may be fun. <laughs> Getting to record a voicemail message as the Joker. Oh, Luke Skywalker is the Joker. Yeah, that Luke Skywalker versus the Joker. Oh, yeah. That would be quite amusing. Uh, anyway, back to what we're actually talking about. Book One, The Hunters, was written and drawn by Mike Grell, with letters by Ken Brusenak and colours by Julia Laquement. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It came out on May 26th, 1987, and the cover is a wraparound number by Grell, very much a hero shot of G.A. in his old costume, a newly redesigned look with Seattle in the background. It's a very good cover. Looks very unusual, though. Maybe it's the printing, but it looks like a penciled or painted cover. It looks like it was on a canvas. Does it? Mm. It's very good, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's very impressive. Very eye-catching. Uh, the story is as follows. In Seattle, 26-year-old prostitute Alice Mayers becomes the 18th victim of who the press are calling the Seattle Slasher, a knife-wielding psychopath stalking the streets. Oliver Queen, recently relocated to Seattle with his paramour Dina Lance, sees the news in the paper as he and Dina redecorate or diner. How would you pronounce Dina? Diner? I say diner. Do you? Okay. I always think a dinosaur you got to eat. Well, I say Black Canary, but... All right, fair enough. He and Black Canary redecorate their new shop come apartment, Sherwood Florists. <laughs> Great name. The same paper contains the headline, Robin Hood Killer Claims Fourth Victim. Dina thinks Dinah, Black Canary, thinks there's something in the water. Obviously, because mere seconds later, a 17-year-old girl high on crack comes careening through a plate glass window. Dina investigates further and finds a major lead to a cocaine manufacturer in the Pacific Northwest. Ollie offers to help, but Dina says she can handle it. Overnight, Ollie gets all mournful that he's on the eve of his 43rd birthday, gives us some origin flashback, and bemoans that he's now a grandfather, but Dina dons her black canary costume for some cosplay capers. Whilst the two are getting jiggy with it, both the Robin Hood killer and this Seattle slasher claim further victims. 
The next day, Dina gives Ollie a redesigned costume, more akin to the Robin Hood of legend than the romanticised movie look. And while she goes to check out the cocaine lead, Ollie takes to the streets to track down the Seattle slasher. The Robin Hood's killer's prey, however, are not random street killings, and one of the prey realises the connection. After a quick phone call, he calls to say he's leaving town and gets in his car. Ollie gets the word on the street and locates the slasher, a damaged Vietnam vet named Boudre, just as he is about to kill again. However, the Robin Hood killer, a beautiful masked Asian girl, is there taking out another of her victims. She kills the Seattle slasher with an arrow through the neck before taking out her intended target, the older man near the car that we saw earlier on. Ollie ponders the arrow that killed the slasher. No answers, just more questions. Um, I did something different with the synopsis, and I read them all, and then went back and did the synopsis, and I don't know if I did a good job with that. Okay. Did it make sense? Yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. As long as it made sense. Well, I read it, so it made sense to me. Yeah, but you've read it. Yeah. So it made sense to you. Um, page one. Throughout the issue, we will see stills of a naked, very pretty Asian girl that's expanded upon as the story progresses. The images are presented without words and the story keeps cutting between the Seattle Slayer and the Robin Hood Killer. There's obviously a link between the young girl in the photos and the Robin Hood Killer, who we'll learn in the final pages is an Asian woman. It has to be said, some of the fashions in this story are very dated. I was going to say, is that the mutants from Dark Knight? It does look like the mutants from Dark Knight, doesn't it? And a guy there with an ACDC t-shirt on. Although ACDC t-shirts are everywhere at the minute, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Everyone wears an ACDC t-shirt. But the art itself is phenomenally good. Grell, I have to say as an artist, I'm not overly familiar with. I was aware of him having seen some Legion art he did. And it always appealed to me, but he never really worked on anything I read. He's very much an artist from the Neil Adams mould, in that everything is very Mm. realistically rendered. I was going to say, it looks like Neil Adams. It is very... I don't know who came up first, Adams or Grell. Back when Neil Adams was good. Now, now. Just because he's evolved along a distant artistic path. But it's not an evolution or a... I I think he's still a good artist, Neil Adams. It's just some of his more artistic choices now. You sometimes look at him and are a bit baffled by them. Yeah. But yeah, I still think he's all right. Um, where was I? I would have liked to have seen Mike Grell do a Batman story at some point. Yeah. Because it does seem like his style is very suited to Batman. Uh, there's some panels that seem to be penciled and coloured rather than inked. And some panels actually look like there's very little inking involved in the traditional sense. The panel layouts are wonderful as well, although I have to say sometimes they are a little bit confusing Mm. in terms of how it's laid out. It just requires you to pay more attention. Interestingly, nowhere in the issue does it say for mature readers. Yeah. Hence this being in the shops where I first saw it, with all the other comics. Can you imagine another mum completely unaware of comics? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh, Buy him a comic to shut him up. And I'll pick up this green arrow that's full of violence and nudity. It'd probably have gone down well. It might have. Possibly. So it is entirely possible, they thought, because it was being sold in comic book stores, it didn't need one. Yeah. But then when I saw the graphic novel in Smith's... Yeah, even then it didn't Yeah, I mean, it was with the Batman stuff. That makes it even worse. Everyone walks into a comic shop and looks at Batman. And in 1989, when everyone was all about Batman. Yeah. Yeah, so... Alright, fair enough. Um... To be fair, it was in the sci-fi section as well. Yeah. But, you know, I suppose it depends on your uh, your idea that the people in the bookstore should actually know what they're stocking and where they're stocking it. Oh, Green Arrow takes off in the UFO after this. Does he? Yeah. Excellent. I'd, li- I'd like that story. Green <laughs> Arrow takes off in a UFO. 
the first couple of pages, Grell does a good job of making you feel sorry for the prostitute Alice Mayers, who lies dying in the street, crying why. It's a very, very effective scene. Quite brutal in its violence, and in this way is letting you know just what kind of story you're, you're letting yourself in for. This ain't your granddad's green arrow. Yeah. With the boxing glove. Oh no, but this stuff. is more fun comics. Um, yeah... Yeah, this wouldn't have been published in more fun comics, would it? One wouldn't have thought. You do wonder if you could go back to the 50s and show them and what show they, what Frederick Wortham yeah. what comics would become. Would the poor guy have a heart attack? Give Siegel and Schuster uh, Superman for tomorrow. Oh, they'd just think that was boring, <laughs> if they've got any sense. Yeah. God, because it was. It was terribly dull. Um, Ollie gives his age here as being 43. Not 40, Wikipedia. <laughs> and he looks... Wikipedia, Wikipedia gave his age as being 40. Because right. I was reading that going, I'm sure I read that he was 43. And he does, he does say it's his 43rd, but he's on the eve of his 43rd birthday. Mm. He looks pretty good for 43. And has done for the next 20, has to be 30 said. years. Yeah, well, how did they play that in the series that followed? Because I have never read the Green Arrow series that followed. Maybe he was going up from 43 until he died and then he came back and he was younger possibly I don't remember Kevin Smith addressing and then that. he was getting older and then Infinite Crisis happened because in Quiver Hal Jordan is still Dead. the spectre yeah because Hal Jordan's the one who's guiding him through the afterlife I think if I remember correctly uh, I, you have to say Dina looks stunning Mm. Um, I'd always assumed she was a contemporary of Ollie's, which would make her about 40-ish as well. But she's an extremely attractive 40-year-old. And that close-up of that ass. Yeah, because we do get quite a lot of close-ups. That ass, the comic. Mm. Um, it don't really matter. I quite like her short black hair. I prefer her as a blonde. Yeah. But that's just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Seattle slasher is a misnomer, because as Ollie points out on page 7, he's been working his way across the US... Yeah. From the east, so why is he called the Seattle Slasher? Um, because Seattle named him before anyone else did. So he killed all those people and wasn't named. He was just called Killer Strikes Again. Or Murderer. Yeah, fair enough. Or maybe they didn't put the connection together that it was the same guy. Maybe. Alright, fair enough. But what would they have done after he left Seattle and went somewhere else? As has been his MO. Um, would they have renamed him? Rebooted him. Yeah. <laughs> the car trip killer. Oh, dear me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that works, I suppose. Yeah. I like on page seven, there's, um, the last panel is just randomly a chalk on coloured paper panel, which happens yeah. in a few more pages. Well, he does He does these weirdo artistic touches all the way through. It's a it's a great shot of Green Arrow. Yeah. It is. But the art in this is, is really, really good. Page eight through nine. The girl comes careening through the window, high on crack. And I like that this is a real drug on a real street with a real teenager. It's not some made-up thing. Grell's Green Arrow seems very grounded in the real world, something that will continue throughout the story. No climactic battle between giant amoebas. Uh, This also kicks off the Dina Lance subplot that will run throughout the series. Uh, page 12, we've already mentioned that Sherwood Florist is a great name for florists. Mm. Especially Green Arrow's florists. Yeah. I wonder how long they worked here. Because I don't remember this ever showing up again. Well, I need to read the rest of Green Arrow's run. Maybe when the window was smashed up, we thought, let's bug her off. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, page 12, 
Uh, yeah, we're the showing around the, the apartment. Dinah, uh, may like having a separate floor than Ollie because mm. they live on separate floors, which makes sense. Yeah, but she she'd get annoyed when Ollie has to keep passing through her on the second floor to keep going <laughs> about his business and then coming back. <laughs> Do you not think that the staircase goes all the way down? He doesn't have to walk through her living room. Well, it does look like there's a staircase going up there and then another one there. It does look like you, you so have, to have to walk through, through the room. Diana's living yeah. room to get up to his. The implication there is that it is a circular sur- staircase yeah. that you have to walk through the rooms to get where you're going. I bet that's a bugger to heat then. Probably. If it opens up onto the stairs. Yeah. Well, it looks like a very nice, very art deco apartment. Mm. Um, the shop's on the bottom floor. And then there are three other stories two where they are at Sherwood Florist with Ollie and Dina both having spacious apartments on floors two and three but a shared bedroom on the top floor do they have an open relationship that they need their own living rooms but share a bedroom <laughs> alright oh let's get together yeah but you can live in a separate place yeah eh, maybe it's just all about having your own space mm. something you don't get unfortunately what? sorry about that uh, page 13 Ollie has a painting of Robin Hood which he has to have everywhere with him or it's not his home. He has a very romanticised view of 15th to 18th century England. Do, do, does he cuddle these paintings? Um, I don't mind that. I, I like what he says, the painting, what it stands for. A time when things were simpler, life was sweeter and death further off. So all those people dying yeah, because we didn't have penicillin. That's when they were doing execution. Yeah, well. and, and people died of simple diseases that today are quite easily. Like peasants out on the street. And yeah, bring out your dead. <laughs> yeah. He must be a king. His robes untouched by filth. Yeah, we are the right. next to Cheney. He's right, it was a much simpler time. Yes, yeah, it was a simpler time. You were either alive or dead. Death wasn't further off, Ollie. <laughs> I think you're romanticising the past a little bit, though. Uh, page 14. Possibly a retcon to Green Arrow's origin here, as we learn that Ollie was taught the bow and arrow from an early age by Howard Hill, who in the story did the trick arrow shooting for the Robin Hood movie. I don't know if that's a true fact. I didn't bother looking it up. I suppose I should have done, really. So he already knew how to handle a bow and arrow before... And didn't learn it on the island. He got shipwrecked, yes, and he didn't learn it on the island. be interesting to see what version of the origin they go through in the upcoming TV show. Again, page 16 through 19... Grell's retelling of the origin is Ollie simply falls off the boat after being drunk and he gets off the island when he discovers two people visiting the marijuana crops and he caught them simply because they were stoned. No great heroic gesture or anything. Um, The papers built it up as being heroic when it wasn't and Ollie became Green Arrow the only time he will be referred to by that name in the entire series. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bit disappointing on page 18 when the pirates show up, but he has a painted flower on his face. Why? He's just a bit of a hippie so, dude. Yeah, pirates! Yeah. One of them looks like John Peel. Remember <laughs> John Peel? Yeah. John Peel was a great DJ. Rest in peace, John. Yeah, um, and page 20. Yeah. Wasn't Ollie in costume when he found What's-His-Face doing drugs? Um... And wasn't Green Lantern with him? Well, you, you can say Green Lantern's still with him. Just he's just not in that panel because yeah. he's just not relevant to this story. I don't. He's in costume on the cover. Oh, so is the cover different to the interior? Possibly because I've not read that one in a long time. Yeah. So it's entirely possibly within his regular clothes. Or they may be retconning his his backstory because I do know in Grell's series that followed this, yeah. there were no other superheroes. 
Green Arrow just existed off in his own little world. Right. And that series did have a suggested for mature readers tag right. until Mike Grell left, and then it was folded back into the DC universe. Right. So maybe they've, they've slightly altered mm. the backstory. Because if you look here, the origin flashbacks, they don't have much in the way of trick arrows. It's just an arrow. Yeah, he's got one there that's got something on the end that doesn't look like an arrowhead. So maybe that just bops people on the head. And he's got a bowler at the top of page, whatever the hell page that is, because page numbers have disappeared, page 20. So it is, you know, he's not deliberately retconning the trick arrows, Hmm. but he's just not making a big deal of them. Page 22, uh, this is undoubtedly Ollie's midlife crisis. Yeah. Um, and it's enlivened by Dina donning the Black Canary costume for some cosplay fun. Oh, it was fun to read it, because it's like... Uh, yeah, you just like fishnets. Well, Ollie, Ollie puts gun to his head. Ass. Ollie shoots himself. Ass. Ollie's you're not dead. Ass. To, to, yeah, you do get a close-up of, of Green Canary's buttocks. It's like that bit from The Avengers. You know, Loki in the background. Oh, and Scarlet Witch's shapely little bottom. Yeah. <laughs> wobbling in the <laughs> foreground so your eye is drawn to Scarlet Johansson so, I called her Scarlet Witch didn't I yeah, it's like, well, crap, what did Loki just say Black Widow yeah Yeah, and it's like there's there's some important plot stuff going on here but for some reason I'm looking at something else <laughs> oh it's good one Joss Whedon's a feminist isn't it mm. otherwise we'd think that was a bit gratuitous yeah oh there's anything wrong with that I don't know. a bit of gratuity never hurts anybody did it especially not on Chuck especially not on Chuck no um, gratuitous sir a moment yeah. um, I did like the double entendre of the line I never throw away the old stuff especially when it has some life in it which is what Dean has said uh, about Ollie a woman walks into a bar and asks for a double entendre she got one. <laughs> oh dear me is it going to be one of those nights <laughs> page 25 has a lovely little fake out with the concern of the undercover cop what if the killer is a woman the Seattle Slayer isn't a woman, but the Robin Hood killer is, mm. which I thought was quite nice. Um, page 24, just going back a bit, some almost full frontal female nudity. Yeah. Which, you know... You know, it took me a, t- a couple of guys to realise what was... A couple of Reese's to find out what was going on, though. Because the first time I looked at it, I was like, oh, it's just a naked woman. Wait a minute, that's... That's, that's a bloke. That's a leg. Yeah. Ah. Yes. Um, again, we see the pretty Asian woman in flashback intercut between the slasher murders, which is actually quite a graphic sex scene for a comic of this vintage. Um, and then there's a shot of the paramour holding a knife to her throat that is foreshadowing upcoming events. This will turn out to be Boudry. And it's all interlinked with him and his story as a Vietnam veteran. The post-coital scene between Ollie and Dina is quite rich in drama and subtext. Ollie's obviously feeling his age and proposes to Dina, saying he wants his own kids. Dina turns him down, gently, but still saying, essentially, when they go out at night, they don't know if they're coming back. And let's be honest, it's part of the appeal of what they do. It's interesting that this is quite a frank and telling part of the superhero psychology that's rarely explored, not that they're insane or have a death wish, the kind of thing that's been harped on incessantly in recent years, but that superheroes an extreme form of adrenaline junkie, especially the ones that have no powers. And I did like the the flip here that he's the one who wants to get married and have kids. Yeah. And she's the one who's like, no, probably not wise for two vigilantes to have children. Yeah, I just like the, the pastel and 
The chalk and pencil drawing. Yeah, there's a, another couple of panels again where Dina is drawn in just chalk and pastel. And again, the art's lovely. Mm. Um, she kept the wig on. Yeah. You noticed that as well? Have you not read that bit in Justice? Uh, no. Where um, they're all being attacked and they're, they're lying in bed and she buggies off to make coffee. Right. And then um, she, she comes back in wearing the wig and he's just like, ah. It's one of those nights, and then it turns out to be Clayface, and she comes in, the panicking, and he uses a screaming thing to get rid of Clayface, and then he's like, "Oh, are you okay? Yeah, I put my earplugs in. Why'd you put your earplugs in? You had the wig on. I was expecting a rough night." Dear <laughs> <laughs> me, um, she doesn't use a sonic scream in this. No, which well, she's only really mentioned as Black Canary when she just dresses up for those two panels. Yeah, if we don't get a lot of Black Canary stuff. She keeps her choker on as well, yeah. at the throat. Which I thought was quite interesting. We're learning an awful lot about Ollie here, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe a bit more than we wanted to learn. Um, page 30. I do like that um, essentially Ollie's pulling a Smallville here, because he even was green in his civilian idea. It's nice to see that's an idea that goes back more than a few decades worth of Smallville. The scene here with Dina giving Ollie his birthday present of a new costume replete with hood rather than pointy hat is full of foreboding as Dina disappears now from the narrative for quite a while before coming back at the end of chapter 2. Which is a bit, mm, when mm. she does come back, isn't it? Page 32, we get a traditional hero's first night scene given the twist that it's only Green Arrow's first night in Seattle. This is much more brutal Green Arrow than we've seen previously. I thought it was pretty hilarious, Green Arrow, as well. Did you? The bit where he, he shoots him in the ear and then just... Yeah, there is there is some, some pretty cool vigilante stuff here. Uh, there's no trick arrows or trick shots. Like Michael said, Arrow, Green Arrow puts one arrow right in between a mugger's hand and another through a second's ear, mm. pinning him to a wall. <laughs> And then he puts a third arrow uh, right near one of the mugger's crotch, so he may be singing soprano. An arrow uses the opportunity to save the elderly couple and interrogate the thugs for information. This leads to a hysterical scene where Arrow boings on the arrow in the what? thug's ear to make him talk. What was it in Tucker and Dale? It's a good job I wasn't hanging low. Yeah, I never, I've never thought I'd say this. I'm glad I'm not hung like a bird. Yeah. In Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, the different way the perps and the victims describe him also add some levity to the story. The crooks have got him depicted in when they're talking to the police as being this big demon with green eyes. And the people that he saved from the mugging, she describes him as Douglas Furbanks. Yeah. I thought that was quite nice. That was quite pretty, that. Um, page 38. I'm not terribly sure how I feel about the Seattle Slayer being a warped Vietnam vet. It seems like the obvious choice. Yeah, it seems a bit... I mean, he's obviously disturbed yeah. before he becomes a soldier. But on the other hand, it's something that's on the verge of cliché. Maybe it wasn't at this point. You've got to remember, this was 1987. Well, maybe he had his checklist on. The thing was, disturbed war vet, Russian, mobster. <laughs> tick, yeah. tick, tick. All the things I want to cover parallax. in my Green Arrow story. Yeah, you didn't get parallax in. That being said, Boudreau is just a MacGuffin. So you can bring Arrow into the storyline properly. So not being part of the main story, I, I can let it go. Um, page 43. Long before Stig Larson, the Robin Hood killer, revealed to be Shadow, is the girl with the dragon tattoo. Mm -hmm. Which I quite liked. It's yeah. a very nice dragon tattoo. That's uh, like that page. It is that. an exceptionally good page, isn't it? Yeah. The art in this is just lovely. I've the, the art of the story. Did you? Yeah. 
the story's good, but it's very it's a very quick read. Yeah. Despite it being three double sized issues. Oh yeah, so look at the size of forty seven pages, got it read in ten minutes. <laughs> did you did you actually ingest it? I did, I paid attention. Alright, fair enough. Um, there's an interesting couple of pages at the back of the book, page forty four onwards, interesting, in that the pictures it's pictures only. So we get a keen insight into the psyche of Shadow, although she's not been named in the story, as he witnesses the attack on the girl by Boudre. Also, Arrow's impotence and pledge not to kill almost leads to the girl's death, whereas Shadow is willing to kill what is, let's be honest, an utter scumbag. Vigilante justice is a key theme in comic books, and a Green Lantern without the impetus to kill, especially without trick arrows in a more realistic setting, is a hard thing to reconcile. Arrows are a bloody and brutal way to shoot somebody, more visceral and gruesome, arguably more romantic than guns, but when depicted realistically, as this story aims to do, they're not pretty. Perhaps the most egregious is that Green Arrow is completely useless in the final pages, unable to prevent the assault on the woman or prevent the death of Shadow's intended target. It's been set up throughout the issues that Green Arrow is not at the top of his game, and this first instalment is brutal, visceral, mature, intriguing and well-plotted, requiring the art to carry the story in many places, which is fortunately a task that Mike Grell is more than up to meeting. Very good first issue, I thought. I enjoyed that a great deal. What about you? I enjoyed it, and not being the Green Arrow fan. No, had you ever read any Green Arrow before? What was this, all shiny and new? I've read him in other Green Arrow things. Right. But not on his own series. No. Never read Quiver or anything. Right. Green Arrow the Longbow Hunters book 2 Dragon Hunt has exactly the same creative team and as we've established before I'm a lazy bugger by and large so we won't read all that out again uh, it came out on the 23rd of the 6th 1987 the cover is red in contrast to the green of issue 1 with Green Arrow and Shadow aiming their arrows at an off screen target the back cover is a profile of Shadow there's a decent Asian feel to the cover as well Get rid of that, though. Uh, Magno Shipping, Mr. Magno and his associates discuss a future shipment of coke with one Mr. Osborne and how they suspect a leak which may lead to cop trouble. Osborne leaves, stating that this arrangement cannot be fouled up. He has a shipment that he wishes to go out the next time Mr. Magno's shipment comes in. Magna and his friends are more concerned that old friends are all being killed in the same way, a black arrow through the throat. Magna says he wants whoever is doing this handled quickly and quietly and tells his associate Cranon to call a fellow by the name of Jankowski. Cranon leaves to attend to business, but on the way out takes an arrow to the throat. Whatever they've done is coming home. At police HQ, Harrow Arrow sorry, is chatting with the police chief, Lieutenant Cameron, telling him what he knows. He discusses the angle of the shot and the make of the arrow, which signifies a smaller person or a woman. Cameron then says they knew all of this, which makes Arrow snicker, but when Green Arrow is informed that the Seattle Slayer's last victim was killed after being rescued, Arrow says that it's a copycat and this Robin Hood killer is still out there. Arrow says they need to track down the common denominator and Cameron can only find that they were all old enough to have been drafted in World War II, but suspiciously weren't. Cameron kicks him out and tells him to stay out of the way. Arrow heads up his leads, thwarting another mugging, whilst investigating Boudry's crime scene. He decides to check on Dina, but after seeing her with a man entering a club, leaves her to get on with her own investigation, and heads over to the Magnos. There he catches a quick glimpse of the killer and follows her to the rooftop. He learns her name is Shadow, but after a brief confrontation, she takes Ollie out easily, which crushes his ego. At home, the expositional news network, TM Michael Bailey, reveals that Ignatius Brown has been killed on the waterfront, and Ollie recognised the picture on the news as the man he'd seen with Dina. He heads to the docks to break some heads and learns a name, Jankowski. 
Jankowski works for Magno and Arrow leaves for the shipping outfit we saw earlier. He overhears Magno being told that the leak has been plugged in the warehouse at the docks. Green Arrow finds the warehouse but Shadow has beaten him to it. He locates a drug den where there are two sadists cooking up a new batch. Arrow, however, sees something far more horrific. Dina, strung up, practically naked and covered in blood, obviously having been tortured. Dina's torturer gives her one more chance to talk before he starts carving bits off her. Ollie puts an arrow through his neck. After taking out the other occupants, he rescues Dina, but he's left open to an attack by a gunman. The gunfire sets light the chemicals on display, as Shadow saves their lives by putting an arrow through the gunman's eye. Ollie and Dina vacate the building as it explodes, as Shadow looks on. <laughs> um, page one. The flashbacks to Shadow as a young girl are juxtaposed with a spider in its web, which is not a particularly subtle visual link, but it is exquisitely rendered by Grell, with Shadow's flashbacks again having more a penciled feel, and the use of grey scaling contrasts these flashbacks from the present day. Yeah, I love the cityscape above it, though. Well, on the first page. Yeah, yeah his cityscapes are all very good in this. And the art's all The good art's all very good in I like the watercolours yeah. of Japan. Because he does use watercolours for the flashback scenes. I mean, there seems to be some watercolours going on in the regular art. Yeah. But it's more prevalent in the shadow flashbacks, which I thought was quite good. Uh, the next few pages, 10 through 14, are, highly ch- are a highly charged confrontation between Green Arrow and Cameron. Um, this was a very interesting scene with Green Arrow showing he's quite a good detective himself. And all the information he gives the Chief about the arrow and the bow is quite fascinating. Yeah. Um... Because he's, he's pointing out that just from the bow, he can tell what kind of longbow shot it mm. and the suggested height and weight of the person that did it Yeah, based just purely on the arrow, which I thought was really quite cool. Mm. Very Batman. Yeah, That is the kind of thing Batman would have done. In addition to it, there are 17 different ways I can kill you from this position. So that's what that feels like. <laughs> Um, I did like that Cameron at least mentioned that by taking the arrow, Green Arrow was tampering with police evidence. Yeah. Because that is normally something that they just... I like the Green Arrow versus police thing going on. Yeah, because it is like, if he really isn't tolerating him, why is he letting him in his office? That and Green Arrow's open vigilante. Mm, Who has shot people this very night. Yeah, Yeah, Cameron doesn't seem to be bothered in arresting him. Yes, they were scumbags. (laughs) And yes, he didn't kill them. Well, you know, you'd think that the police may have something to say about that, but apparently not. All that useless. No. They they obviously are like, oh, yeah, so you you put an arrow through a couple of guys, it don't matter. Hey, Jimmy brought the (laughs) donuts. And he's drinking coffee. Yeah. Which is. One would imagine lots of cops are coffee addicts, I would have thought. Uh, For all the nice things I've said about the art in this issue, and page 11 has a beautifully penciled shot of Green Arrow, either Grell or the colourist, decided to colour two quite pivotal close-ups of Arrow getting in the police chief's face. A kind of murky brown. Do you know, I think that was a bit odd. You want that one? Yeah, and there's another one later on. Mm. And it's it's a really odd artistic choice. Well, that looked like another one of those coloured paper things. Yeah. yeah, but it makes it look like somebody turned the lights out for two panels. Yeah. Um, I didn't think that was very successful. If he'd gone with his usual thing that he did in the last issue of them just being a grayscale thing. Yeah. That would have been fine. Darker. Yeah, but for some reason the colourist decided to colour them like a murky brown. One's a dark green, the other one's a dark brown. Yeah, it's it's very weird. Um 
the art around these two panels are lovely and well coloured and then these two look like somebody spilled an inkwell on them which doesn't quite work page 14 again the cop popping the tums was quite funny so he's a coffee addict and he has indigestion he's probably got horrible blood pressure <laughs> one would imagine uh, page 15 Green Arrow stops a couple of muggers and breaks one of the fingers yeah <laughs> I had a little dance mat. <laughs> Which I thought was hysterical. I'm not much of a dance mat, I like that little dance mat. Yeah, I don't know why the dance mat was there. Because they say, oh, Luke. Oh, yeah, the Trianon and Ballroom. Yeah. So, yeah, so they must be on the floor. This must be a Seattle thing. Yeah. Other than watching a couple of seasons with a Fraser, I don't know much about Seattle. <laughs> it was in Seattle, Fraser, wasn't it? Was it not? I don't think so. You see, yeah, he says goodnight Seattle at the end of every episode, doesn't he? Yeah. Sorry, I had a Fraser moment for a second. Uh, page 18. Ollie apparently likes to stand naked in front of a window. <laughs> As you do. Yeah, with the candles on behind him. So that anyone looks up, they get an eye full of his pink arrow. <laughs> yeah. Delightful. It's a Seattle thing. Granted, it's not the only appearance little Ollie will put in. I didn't see that. Um, you're not missing anything. Is um, it actually in there? Yes, I'll point it out to you. Because I even saw the bit where he got out of the bath and I still couldn't see I'll it I'll point it out to you. And I saw little Jim Gordon. Yeah, I, I didn't pay attention to little Jim Gordon, did I? Um, again, the, God, the art's lovely on this page. Yeah. The two shots of Ollie are just look like pencils and the burly coloured. His hair and his moustache and beard are coloured. And the dino And his eyes. And then the Dino one is again dino. I, I even like the bed. Yeah, the, the bed, bed sheets. Yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. It's a, a really, really well-drawn book. Mm. Um, page 20. I have to say, I was a bit unclear story-wise here. Okay. So maybe you can shed some light on this for me. When Ollie goes to check on Dina at the bar, he does so in the Sherwood Florist van. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which drives right past her. Yeah. So does Dina see him or not? Yeah, that's her looking at it then. Because the guy she's with is looking away, but Dinah's looking at it. Yeah, because I thought it would be useful to the plot, because he knows where to start looking for her later. And she would have had to have been blind to not see the truck. Mm. But she doesn't seem to mention at any point that she saw him. Yeah, it looks like it, though. Right, okay. See, I was... I was did she or didn't she? Mm. But you're of the opinion she did. Yeah. All right, okay. I'll go with that. Um, the shots of Green Arrow and Shadow's Eyes on page 25... You get a close-up of both of them. It's very good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Where the two gunslingers are eyeing each other up. They've both got their arrows cocked and pointed. Eyes as well. Yeah, and it's just their eyes. And the pencilling. Again, it just looks penciled and coloured. Yeah. It doesn't look like... I'd love to know how he did this. But I am fascinated with artists. Probably loads of different medias. Yeah. Because I, you know, I can't draw at all. So I am one of the best things about going to conventions is watching them draw. Yeah. I don't even have to talk to them, which a lot of artists don't like. Yeah, I, don't, I just I'm like, yeah. I don't have to speak to you. Just I'll just watch you draw. Yeah, because you're very very good. I'm paying you to work, not talk. Some of them don't charge. No, which is nice. Uh, page twenty-seven. The arrow shadow fires Mrs. Green Arrow because he's not her target naturally, and strikes down what appears to be a loony banging on about Dallas and Dynasty. And strike the likes of the Ewings and the Colbys from the face of the earth. I didn't get that. I was going to say, I bet you didn't get that, did you? I, I didn't get how he got hit. But that, I was like, well, which arrow did it? That one. Yeah. It makes a big deal out of the, showing the, the, her, the her, uh, her arrowhead. I can't speak. Yeah. But I was just like, when, when did she fire the arrow? Why did she kill him? 
<laughs> but what was he going to do with it? He seemed like a pretty decent bloke, other than... Other than being a bit of a loony. What? I can only assume it was something to do with yeah. the Magno thing. We'll probably find that out later, and I've just forgotten, because it's a week since I read Oh, this. right, yeah, you're right, I can see it now. You see? It's on the other side of his own. Yeah, page right. 29, as Mike's just pointed out, Grell's already given us a gratuitous butt shot of Ollie, and Dina, to be yeah. fair. But here, he leaps out of the bath, and we get a blurry glimpse of Ollie's manhood. Which, quite frankly, I could have done without. That's but, the Longbow Hunters, indeed. Yeah, that's why it's called the Longbow Hunters. <laughs> oh, We've had numerous nude female shots, so I suppose we have to pay the piper at some point, don't we? Uh But, you know, I could have done without it, but I'm sure there are segments of the audience who enjoyed that, both male and female, so fair play to them. Female? This is DC Comics. Women don't read comics. Is that what one of them said at some point? And was that Quisada or Didio? It might have been. I can't Probably remember. Probably Didio. It was one of them. I don't remember who it was. So we won't, we won't cast aspersions. Um, page 33-31. Um, avoid mention of all these horribly dated mirrored sunglasses. <laughs> which do make him look like he should be in Top Gun. Um, I do love him in the bar here pulling a Batman. Because mm. let's be frank, Ollie has the most distinctive facial hair in comics. Yeah. There's no way anyone who's ever seen him and Oliver ever seen Queen? Green, Arrow Green Arrow would not put two and two together. Yeah. It is the beard that would give you away. It is, isn't it? Because he doesn't wear much of a mask. No. But the beard is kind of... It's like he's not even bothered, though, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not bothered if you know who I am. What are you going to do about it? doesn't matter if you try and hurt the people I love just to get to I am. It's all right, because she's a crime fighter. Yeah, so she'll put an arrow through your head. Yeah. Or I'll sonic scream her. I got that wrong way around, didn't I? Yeah. She'll sonic scream. Although, oh, I'll put according to Fran Miller, she'll put those high heels in your hands. Yeah, I'll start Batman and Robin. Yeah. <laughs> I'd almost managed to forget that that existed. <laughs> uh, page 33 through 36. In fact, Green Arrow is very Batman. Throughout the entire scene at the dock, he sneaks in and hugs the shadows and gets where he's going without being seen. I was a bit confused by page 34, where... He pushes the guard off the dock. Yeah. And then the dog and goes the for him. But the guy's holding the lead. Yeah. And the dog goes after him. I'm hoping he didn't kill that dog. Yeah. Because that would be quite unfortunate. Yeah, the guy falls silently. Oh, yeah. And makes no noise whatsoever. In that way that they don't. Mm. Unless George Lucas is doing a special edition. And then they'll dub in a scream. A Wilhelm scream. Yeah. Uh, again, page 36, I was a bit unclear on why Shadow shot the dog, but just tied up the guard. Did you get that? Because the dog will make noise. Because the dog will bark? Yeah. Hmm. Or but maybe she can... she just... she's coming back for food later. <laughs> but she can bang, bind and gag the guard, right. but she shot the dog. See, with the, the guard, he'll have his mates to humiliate him for the rest of his life. Oh, I felt a bit sorry for the dog, to be honest with you. Page 37 is gorgeous. Shadow learning to be Shadow with her sensei. Would it be a sensei in the background? Yeah. No, it's karate, isn't it? Who treat you taught samurais? Is it not a sensei? Is it just master? I don't remember. It's been a long time since I saw Kung Fu. Uh, page 38. I presume Jankowski is the elder of the two. And he's a real sadist. The guy cooking up actually seems to be a bit put off by Jankowski's misogyny and attitude towards Dina. And these pages are wonderfully paced. We've only seen Dina's feet 
and then in full page the amount of damage being done to her is actually really shocking and quite powerful. I abhor people who hurt women. I mean, we've mentioned in passing on the show what it is my wife does for a living, mm-hmm. and some of the stories just do make you sick. But, you know, sadists and child molesters, I'd be quite happy to bring the death penalty back for people like that. Okay. I know it's not politically correct to say that, but I don't care. Mm. People who do that to women, and some of the things your mum tells me. Yeah, but, okay. Electric chair. But at the same time, it's making them live not worse than killing them. No, because we're paying for them. Sorry. No. Zero tolerance. Yeah. I think is what I was saying. <laughs> yes. See, sometimes I, I, I'm sure I'm going to get into trouble at some point. Um, I'm also not much for torture porn. And I, I don't even like seeing women get hurt. Hmm. Which is, you know, when I used to watch Buffy and she used to get punched. I was never a fan of that. No. But I mean, I knew she'd punch back. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh, no, it's her own alias as well. Yeah. When Jennifer Garner used to get the crap kicked out of her, and you're like... Yeah, but she turns around hit. and then kicks the crap out of her, yes, and then whines does. for a season. Yeah, so it's like, well, don't hit poor Jennifer Garner. <laughs> it's bad enough for the poor woman. She She'll be an electra. <laughs> she does. She still crops up. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. She's like UFO, she crops up every once in a while. That corn circle. <laughs> um, I don't like torture porn. So, page 41 was horrible and compelling at the same time. You can make an argument that this is very graphic. And you'd be right, it yeah. is. But I think it has to be for the next scene to have any power. The story set up that Ollie's not killing, he won't kill, but we need to see the effect of Dean's torture to give Ollie's next actions meaning and weight. It's beautifully staged and it's all done in the arts with no dialogue at all. We see Shadow stood on the rooftop nearby, arrow poised. Ollie sees that it's Dina and the shock on his face is palpable. We then see an arrow come through Jankowski's throat, covered in blood, as he looks at the jutting protuberance, shock on his face, as if he can't believe what he's seeing. We then get a magnificent fight scene as Green Arrow makes the scene via skylight. He arrows a perp through the leg, whose wild gunfire sets a number of chemicals aflame, and they fall over him, setting the perp on fire. Boo-hoo. Ollie frees Dina, turns to leave. All the while, Jankowski has been touching the arrow, sticking out of him in disbelief. It's only when he falls forward, shoving the arrow back out of his back, that we see the tail feathers are green and that Ollie killed him. And he's, you know, he's fully justified in doing so. Um, There's an interesting juxtaposition between a lot of US comics attitude to killing and UK comics attitude that's actually quite interesting in the States the main superheroes have a code against killing. And the ones that do kill, like the Punisher, started as bad guys before becoming anti-heroes. Over here, Judge Dredd happily killed indiscriminately yeah. in 2000 AD. There's that brilliant, memorable, iconic shot. Of him punching the guy through um, the face. Taste the fist of Dredd. Yeah. Of him punching the guy through the head. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is quite hysterical in many ways. Um, perhaps this is why this was shocking as a kid. Mm. The fact that this was... I say a kid, you know what I mean. Um, this was a mainstream comic book, which gave it its impact. And I, th- I do think that it does need to be graphic for it to work. We need to see why Ollie breaks his code. And there isn't anyone amongst us who's seeing our, our girlfriend or wife in the same situation wouldn't do the same thing, in my opinion. Um, page 45, G. Green Arrow leaves himself wide open 
after rescuing Dina and Shadow puts an arrow through the eye of the man about to open fire on him. Um, it's a brutal panel. Mm. The arrow through the eye. Um, I, it's a highly significant issue that puts paid to the idea that the middle part of a trilogy is normally the weakest with lots of just running around. Which is normally the way Doctor Who stories went. The middle bits were just let's run up and down a corridor. And let's read a book really fast. Yeah. A little boring in the middle. <laughs> Following the standard trilogy setup of darkening the story and torturing, in this case, literally, the central characters, the stage is set for a great finale as we find out what exactly Shadow is up to. But it's the horror of the issue that I remember it for. It may be hard to believe for young people today where DC has a decapitation quota to me every month but I was genuinely shocked by this as a teenager powerful genuinely mature storytelling somebody should remind Dan Didier that his company did this long before he was in charge and did it better mm. uh, I read a few reviews of this after doing the write up and was surprised that a number of reviewers or readers said that there was implied rape here did you get that? I read that there was an implication of uh, I, I read that there was an implication of it, but I didn't read it that there was an implication that it, it had happened. I didn't get that from the story. No, it's um, what, what he says is like you want some of this before I've yeah. messed it up. I, I, I read that. So he's implying to the other bloke if yeah. you want some. But I didn't read that it was implied that it happened. No, I didn't get that at all because Jangowski's a, a sadist and a misogynist. But I didn't get that Dean had been raped because that didn't seem to be how he got his jollies. Yeah, he was he was very much how can I hurt you so it's no I didn't get that as well he didn't seem interested in her sexually she totally would have been in Didi or DC oh yeah where I think they have a quota for that as well uh, the third and final issue entitled Tracking Snow came out on the 28th of the 7th 87 and the cover leans more towards the yellow this time around the front covers another shot of GA staking through the snowy forest longbow in hand arrow pulled back but not fully loaded for birth the back cover shows Shadow sitting naked in the snow as wolves run over the peaks behind her she's not cold well I was going to say as well is, is this a real trial because in the novel for Nightfall yeah. what's her name Lady Shiva makes Bruce Wayne do this makes him sit outside in the snow naked before she'll say right you are ready to come and train so maybe it's a genuine I don't know I've, I've been out in the snow in just my pyjamas and bare feet so that's bloody freezing so yeah maybe it's a, a genuine I don't, I don't care about what honest samurai is <laughs> I'm not going out in the snow in you would not have made a good samurai would you probably not yeah. maybe it is a genuine trial I don't know uh, at Dina's bedside, Green Arrow suffers a fitful sleep. He is awakened to be told that Dina has lost a lot of blood, but her injuries were all superficial. A torturer is playing with her. Lieutenant Cameron arrives, saying that the fire destroyed everything but Jangowski's dog tags, and they can find no record of him serving. Who, wonders Green Arrow, can wipe military records? He leaves the hospital and investigates Shadow's tattoo. A tattooist tells him that the dragon is the symbol of a servant of the Oyabun. Oyabun? Is that? How do you think you pronounce that? O-Y-A-B-U-N My mangled pronunciation strikes again The Japanese equivalent of a godfather in the Mafia A samurai But a woman can't be a samurai Can they? Meanwhile, Magno and Osborne are discussing the recent warehouse fire With Magno playing it down, saying accidents happen He assures Osborne that his shipment will go out and those will come in Osborne points out that of all the bodies recovered The spy wasn't one of them And to that end, he appoints his own man Ed, Eddie Fries Fires, isn't it? F-Y-R-E-S Eddie Fires to deal with her Ollie bumps into a bag lady who says the dragon lady gave her two dollars to tell him Texaco H414 Hunter Ollie recognised them as grid coordinates and after a quick check with a paper map 
Well, he doesn't have an iPhone. Oh, iPhone 5, for the best for Ollie Queen. The coordinates take him to Mount Rainer, elevation 14,410 feet. He doesn't spot the bag lady's dragon tattoo. Green Arrow locates her grid coordinates where Shadow waits for him. She asks why is her vengeance any different to his? He wants Magno for what he did to Dina, she wants him for what he did to her honour, or they can end each other now. A helicopter shoots in for a landing and Green Arrow and Shadow take cover. Magna and Osborne emerge from the chopper and are met by another chopper to switch out a couple of million dollars worth of cocaine. And they will take Osborne's freshly minted $350,000 in cash. Shadow takes aim at Magna. Ollie takes aim at Shadow and fires, only to hit fires. That's a bit confusing. But causes Shadow's shaft to Mitch Magna. Mitch. To miss Magna. Instead, they jump back in the copter and make their escape, but Shadow destroys the second helicopter before it can fly away. Green Arrow corners Osborne, who pulls the cocaine into the water and says that Ollie may know of the CIA's involvement in this and their desire to use a known drug dealer's operation to use his network to channel funds from the Iran arms deal to Nicaraguan Contras. Nicaraguan Contras. It's going well tonight. Nicaragua. Nicaragua. God, oh, crap of this. Osborne, it's only talking. Yeah. Talking and reading. It's like, you know, don't you learn them in primary school, Andrew? Osborne says he was never here, but Green Arrow can keep the money. Don't tell the IRS, though, he says. Magnor arrives home to find Green Arrow waiting for him. Magnor explains that as members of the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, he and his team were tasked with finding a link between a Japanese internment camp detainee named Tomonga, Tomononga, Tomonaga, and the Yakuza's $2 million in gold. He never cracked, but later in the 50s they tracked him down, and after Jankowski had finished with Tomononga's wife, he told everything. They used the money to fund their operations and had the CIA wipe their files and it was business as usual. But Green Arrow has no hard evidence, so what's he going to do about it? Green Arrow says he was a, he has a witness who will testify that Magno gave the order to whack Ignatius Brown. It's a lie, but as he doubts Osborne will testify on his behalf, he'll be going down. Magno reaches for a gun, but an arrow impales him through the heart. Shadow was the daughter of Tomonaga, and she has finally had her revenge. Later at the hospital, Ollie is there when Dina awakens and he shows her the money. Which apparently he keeps. Yeah. Which I was down with. Yeah. I wouldn't make a very good superhero, would I? Probably not. <laughs> I'm advocating eye for an eye, quite literally. Yeah. In the case of this, I'll keep the money. Thieves, I'll take that money. I'm just not good enough to be a superhero. Mm. All these years reading comics, and I'm, and I'm corrupt. Yeah. It's just not right, is it? One would think I would have actually earned some, some honour and responsibility. And other things. But apparently not. Uh, page two through four. Ollie has a nightmare, which is arguably more graphic than the real thing, with the visuals of Dina actually being cut, and then Jankowski turning into a dragon. I like the dragon bit. Did you like the, the bit where he turns into a dragon with a, a demon head? Yeah. And his eyes and his teeth become all Dracula-like and his eyes go red and he's spitting out flame. Because um, it's how you read it as well. She's going across the yeah, page Yeah, they're going the across the top and coming round the bottom across two pages. It's very well done. Hmm. Very well executed. Um, as with most dreams in stories, it makes perfect sense in context. Oh, Unlike yeah. dreams in real life that frequently make What was it no doing with them? Why was it there? Why am I here? Yeah. Why is my why am I in my house and I turn around I'm in Manchester? Somebody your mum works with the other week said that we were in her dream, and all we did was just drive past her in a car. And it's what? I've only met her once. What was yeah. I doing in her dreams? <laughs> Do you really want an answer to that question? You were in my dream. You were driving circles around me. 
Um, page seven through nine. Oh, crap, missed a bit. Page six, the doctor waking Ollie up, saying he was having a nightmare, and him looking at Dina and saying, I still am, was really quite sweet. Hmm. I, I quite like that. Very nice. Page seven through nine, Cameron and Green Arrow meet up again. And again, the conversation's very rich. Cameron looks like the guy who used to be in Get Smart. But you don't remember Get Smart, do you? No. no, okay, fair enough. We'll let that go then and won't comment on you being young. Um, Cameron knows. Arrow knows more than he's letting on. But Green Arrow's very canny in what he lets slip and what he doesn't, giving Cameron no hard evidence. But Cameron is portrayed as being smart, as it would have been easy to portray him as a buffoon. But he knows there are two different arrowheads used in the killing. But he doesn't know Dina, calling her Jane Doe. Mm. Have you not fingerprinted her and found out who she is? Don't know. Has Green Arrow not told him her name? Um, no, because doesn't he not want a connection or anything? Well... Like, doesn't he say, like... Does he not want a connection with that beard? Well... Because doesn't he bring up, it's like, why was he there specifically to save that one specific woman? He doesn't say that. He just says he happened by. Yeah. He's very, um... That's what I was saying. He's very canny about what he gives away. Uh, pages 9 through 10. Uh, I thought for a second I was reading a Frank Miller comic. <laughs> with all this talk of Yakuza and Oyabun and Samurai. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some good backstory. And in the side panels we get Shadow's childhood and her father's relationship with the Yakuza. In the synopsis, I kind of glossed over this to keep the synopsis of what was quite a complicated third issue to synopsize. It wasn't complicated to understand or read. Mm. Um, I kind of just glossed over this. But in a nutshell, after Tomonaga returned to Japan, Magna and his cronies from the internment camp tracked him down. They tortured his wife and he told them all about the gold and where it was. He then confessed to the Yoyabun. Oyabun. <laughs> I do hope somebody's listening to Japan can, yeah. can actually tell me the correct pronunciation. The, 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 the shaking their head. Yeah, the, the, yeah. You have brought dishonour to the... Let's be honest, I do an awful lot of this that probably makes people shake their heads in shame. Accents, bad singing. There's nothing in this that makes me look good. Wow. <laughs> oh, but it's comedy, presumably. Yes. If it makes somebody laugh. It's comedy to someone. It's comedy to someone. Um, the Yoyabun that he had betrayed... He told the Yoyabun that he had betrayed him, and to satisfy honour, he requested be allowed to kill himself via Harikiri. The Yoyabun then trained Shadow and said that when he had tracked down all of her father's killers, he would tell her where they were, and she would be allowed to go out to avenge her father. So the implication from that is the Yoyabun didn't blame Tomonaga for the loss of the money. Mm-hmm. But in terms of honour being satisfied, her father chose to kill himself, yeah. which is the way of these things, isn't it? If you've ever read Shogun or watched Shogun. Mm. Just the, the, the tattoo making and the old flashbacks seem quite painful yeah it's like two pieces of wood with a nail in it yeah and it must have took a, a considerable amount of time mm. to tattoo that big dragon all over her body because it does go all over her body doesn't it you have to see on the back page yeah. it goes all over her arm and then halfway down her back to just above her rib cage which is you know, that's quite fun um, page 17 fires looks like Archie Goodwin I don't know if that was intentional or not Archie Goodwin still being around at this point because uh, Archie Goodwin was also the model for one of the villains in the Batman Adventures comic okay. there was three bad guys I can't remember the names one was Mastermind I think that was modelled after Archie Goodwin Denny O'Neill 
and Mike Curley. Okay. When Mike Paravet was drawing it. Yeah, I have that Ferrari now. Do you? Or is it a Lam- Yeah, it's a Ferrari. <coughs> sure, it's not a Lamborghini. Yeah, it might be a Lamborghini. I have that Lamborghini. You have a model of that Lamborghini. If you had a real Lamborghini, we wouldn't be working for a living. Sure. We'd be doing something else. Um, page 20 to 22. The art turns into a lush, fully painted style for the panel showing Mount Rainer and the first panel where Ollie in full green arrow garb is seen admiring the view evoking the Robin Hood legend mm. green arrow looks right at home in the forest that looks the landscape yeah it's a, be- it's a beautiful piece because that looks painted doesn't it yeah in what contrast did, what, to what's it Texaco was it, was it was Texaco a different company when this was published uh, I don't know I don't know what the big deal with Texaco they're, they're, they're an oil company yeah. Oh, yeah. Aren't they? I, I don't know do we have Texaco over here? Yeah. Do we? Yeah. Shows how much attention I pay. They're not as big. Don't I just pull into a petrol station and just groan about how much it costs to fill up my car? It's usually Asda. Yeah. But I still just... That's you outside of the house. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. Tell everyone that I'm miserable getting here. Um, page 24 through 27 is a Mexican standoff between Shadow and Green Arrow and is wonderfully played. Shadow is very much a woman of honour and she has no interest in killing Green Arrow as they ultimately have the same goal. In turn, in tone, in turn, Arrow doesn't want to kill Shadow or anyone, but she's witnessed his killing and she's like, there's no difference in him seeing her kill. Also, she's loading here so she knows where, she, where he is and this stops him from hunting her. The panel on top of page 26 where we see Shadow and Green Arrow and behind them the different arrowhead that they both use is really really wonderful there's also a nice juxtaposition between the similar scene in the last issue a Shadow now looks at Green Arrow's eyes again but this time says he has the eyes of a killer page 33 Green Arrow aims for fires which is a really weird I keep looking at that and thinking it should be Friar <laughs> because it's F-Y-E-R-S and shoots through Shadow's bow throwing off her aim just enough that she shoots and misses Magno which is a very clever piece of marksmanship but he hits the target, he hits what he was aiming at which yeah. is Fires who was aiming at Shadow it's very similar to the scene in the James Bond film Moonraker do you remember that bit where Bond and Hugo Drax have you never seen Moonraker? Right. Bond and Hugo Drax are out clay pigeon shooting and Bond shoots and misses the clay pigeon yeah. And Drax says, uh, you missed, Mr. Bond. And James says, did I? And then an assassin just falls from the tree. And Bond's all, oh, no, no, I don't think I did. Which is quite fun. Yeah. Very funny bit in Moonraker. The only one. No, there's lots of funny bits. In, I've said before, funny Moonraker, bit of trimming, could have been a much better film. Yeah. Page 36, 37 is a bit jumbled. Uh, I hate to say because I really loathe to criticise this book Green Arrow aims at the helicopter and he misses and then it blows up because you quite clearly see his arrow bouncing bouncing off the cockpit Mm -hmm. but then the helicopter explodes yeah and you see and shadows waving at it how did she blow up a helicopter with an arrow does she have exploding arrows? Explosive arrows, yeah. You reckon? Is that what you're going with? Yes. Like um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Have exploding arrows. I, I only watched that when I was very young, and even at a very young age, I was thinking, my, this is... The thing with Robin Hood is every version of Robin Hood, because I love Robin Hood. I yeah. love the Robin Hood legend. 
But every version of Robin Hood since 1985 has been ruined by Robin of Sherwood. Is that, I think that, is that the one I watched? Yeah, you, I, I think I watched Robin Hood, Robin of Sherwood as a kid. Which one's that? With you. It's the one with Michael Prade in the first two seasons. And he's replaced by Jason Connery with oh, blonde hair in the third season. The one I saw was a film. Well, maybe you saw Robin of Prince of Thieves then. That was it. Yeah. And I was thinking, my, this is a might. And it, it's yeah. one of those... It's one of those things. I will buy actors playing characters of different nationalities. I've not got a problem with Henry Cavill as Superman. Mm -hmm. I could probably even buy an American actor as James Bond, as long as he could do the accent. Yeah. But Kevin Costner as Robin Hood just seemed a bit wrong, not just because he was an American playing a British person, or Mm -hmm. a British icon, but he didn't even bother with an accent. Yeah. And it's... it's, The the Robin Hood legend is he's supposed to be quite young. Mm. But Robin of Sherwood's awesome. Robin of Sherwood's a fantastic show. I heartily encourage anyone to watch Robin of Sherwood okay. because it's brilliant but we're not a Robin of Sherwood podcast uh, page 38 through 39 Osborne explains his involvement to Green Arrow to Grell's credit this does not feel like expository overload but plays into Ollie's cynical worldview, hmm. where he's he's the kind of clandestinely on behalf of the government isn't he yeah he's doing something for the CIA but he's using a drug runner to do it which is mm, a bit strange. Wow. But Green Arrow points out that that's a bit odd. But he gets a nice payout. Yeah. With all that money. Mm. I'd keep it. Shoot a couple of guys with an arrow in the E and you get yeah, paid lots. Yeah, you get paid lots of money. Lovely shot of Seattle on the top of page 40. Uh, page 40 through 42, Magnus a complete scumbag. Mm-hmm. And his line about Green Arrow plays by the rules just shows how little he knows about Ollie. Before Shadow puts an arrow through him. At the end, he's 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 not given the most gratuitous death of the series. No, it's quite disappointing. Yeah, well, it is one of those things. Would that have killed him instantly? Probably not. Probably not. So you know, you make that's the thing with arrows; they don't kill you instantly, mm. and they do more damage when you pull them out. Yeah, which is why when Ollie shot the guy who tortured Diner in the last issue, it's he fell fall. forward, so that arrow pushed back through his body. Mm. Which you know, ow, but. I've already said he deserves it. Um, you didn't have a lot to say about issue three. I didn't do uh, many notes for any of the issues after issue one. That was like, I've not really got much to say about the story. I prefer the art more. But I thought it was great. I think Longbow Hunters is an awesome story that for once paints the world in which vigilantes work as very grey indeed. Uh, in this story, Green Arrow murders in cold blood, justifiably so. He's culpable in a government conspiracy that he can do nothing about and is prepared to lie on the stand to get a guilty man put away. He also keeps the drug money for himself. Um, all actions that can be looked as morally unjustifiable, but given what he goes through in this story, we actually applaud when Green Arrow kills Jankowski for what he did to Dina. We accept when he keeps the dirty money because well we've pointed out I'm reasonably moral most of the time but somebody gave me a bag of untraceable cash yeah I'd totally keep it um, and he's prepared to lie to get a racist morally corrupt drug pusher banged up my heart bleeds but then there's the whole thing where the character is very with his cynical worldview and what he thinks about the politics and the government and all that and then he does this yeah, so there's and nothing. then he'll then go back to his cynical well, I don't know, because I haven't read Grell's continuing series. So but with the more recent things I've read... Yeah, they, they do. he does go on. Well, see, you can argue this fits into his worldview. That there is a corrupt politician that are doing something. Yes, but he's becoming 
what he's arguing well, he, he can't do anything about it at that point but he can get Magno sent down yeah and he does but he'll he'll use dubious means to do it yeah. you know whatever um Grell does an excellent job of telling a tale that is both uplifting and grim morally dubious yet filled with people who are honourable and good it's a very mature take on a hero that in the past has been viewed as a silly knockoff of Batman with some very graphic scenes of torture and death and it's a thoroughly successful updating of the character and the world he lives in Grell keeps all his off-quoted politics arrest in this story as the character's going through a very real midlife crisis I can see how some people may not have liked this but I prefer some heroes to be a little bit older than 29 and Ollie and Dina make such a great couple showing that life is still pretty good for people in their 40s if you ignore all the torture um, final analysis it's a shame that this doesn't seem to have taken off as much as Miller's Dark Knight or Burns Man of Steel because it really is an excellent updating of an old character um, again there's no mature reader's label on the story but it stretches what can be done in the comic book medium and does it very well I, I think we should all get that top ten list of comics and graphic novels hmm. changed and get Killing Joke and Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen off the list. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with them, but they've had their day. Yeah. We and should do an entire se- a series about... Which ones should be on the list. Yeah. And which ones shouldn't. Hey Kids Comics top ten. Yeah, I suppose we could do. Um, fine. It's a fine example of the comic book medium and we should champion the Longbow Hunters as one of the best and most underrated comics of recent times. It's been reprinted again, as we've mentioned, as publicity for the upcoming TV adaptation of Green Arrow, simply called Arrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I urge you to pick up a copy because it's really, really good. I'm looking forward to Arrow. Oh, yeah. I have to say, yeah, I'm quite excited by it. I hope it doesn't suck. I'm actually really not involved. You never are, though. Well... You're not bothered about any adaptations of anything. No, I am actually, but I don't think that handling of superheroes in the theatrical media is in very well. Apart the Avengers well, and Captain America. It's DC, so. Oh, right. Hmm. DC have had success in putting their characters on the small screen. On the small screen, yeah. Smallville, whatever you think of Smallville, they ran for ten years, so somebody must have been watching it. Probably the people who created it. <laughs> I don't think that's quite enough to keep the show on the air, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, not perhaps. even you enjoy Smallville for this No, I, I, I just kind of dipped in and out from season five onwards, didn't I? I wonder if Michael Bailey enjoyed it. Michael didn't stick with every single episode, no. So there you go, even the Michael even Bailey the dropped. Superman fan. Yeah. yeah. So, but it has its fans. Yeah, the people who've never read a Superman comic. Very possibly. <laughs> so there is an entire generation who think that that is Superman. And they're wrong. It's a shame. Well, I'll give you that. Anyway, um, that's it for this week and this season. We've not quite decided what's going on yet. We may do something or other. We may have to just simply cut back what we cover because it's getting quite time-consuming at the minute. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be back at some point doing something, I'm sure. See you later. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew, and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network at www.twotruefreaks.libsen.com. That's T W O T R U E F R E A K S dot Libsen, L I B S Y N dot com. So if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are, that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.